0: Well, hello, everybody. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Adrian Bredel to the show. A native of London and graduate of Cambridge University, Adrian earned his Ph.D. in history from the University of Virginia. He joined Arizona State University as a lecturer in August 2018 and is now Associate Director of the Political History and Leadership Program. A specialist on placing the Civil War in a global context, he is the author of Colossal Ambitions, Confederate Planning for a Post-Civil War World which we will be discussing today. Currently, there is an exhibit at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond based on Adrian's research, Southern Ambitions, War for the Future. Adrian also lectures on 19th century American history, war and political thought, and the history of globalization of that period. Now, before we get rolling here, let me implore you to use your better judgment and head over to theroguehistorian.com where you can subscribe to this podcast and of course, leave a rating and a comment about the show. I would love to hear what you think. Then, it would be super cool if you follow me on Twitter at mkeithharris Harris and Instagram at KeithHarrisHistory. Okay, let's welcome Adrian to the show. All right. Well, if you're ready to go, I'm ready to go. I'm ready. I'm ready whenever you are. Well, I am absolutely ready. This is uh, <laughs> Adrian, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. It's great to see you.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. Now, we have something in common. Uh, my listeners might want to know. We, we share uh, an advisor uh, in, in Gary Gallagher, who was just on the show uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, we are both uh, alums of the University of Virginia, Mr. Jefferson's University, as it were. Um, So uh, we had that in common, though we never crossed paths uh, in graduate school. I I went through a couple minutes before you did, and uh, and and now here we are. So it's good to see you. Um, Nice that we share. How are things? Have you been back to grounds uh, recently?
1: I was back uh, far enough for Gary Gallagher's retirement Mm. at the rotunda. Mm -hmm. Where they threw, and that was so that was uh, a year before last. I mean, I've been constantly going back, wanting to go back to Virginia, but uh, and I was meant to be going back, you know. for my exhibit I have an exhibit opening I shouldn't I'm sorry to plug this straight away but at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond Mm. there's an exhibit based on my book called Southern Ambitions and of course I was meant to go back and that was that opened on July the 4th on Independence Day last year but tragically I had to do a virtual sort of you know, promotion thing mm-hmm. from here in Arizona. So um, I've been thwarted on my return legs to, Rich, to to Virginia. I may, you never know, I'm hoping to go back at Christmas, but we have to push it out and maybe go back in the new year to see the folks at the Virginia Historical Society as well who, who, who I want to try and catch up with as well as at the museum.
0: Well, hopefully that works out for everybody. I know we've all had to make circumstances, uh, yeah. uh, uh, sacrifices you know, during, uh, during these times. I mean, I, don't, I, I go back east with my, uh, my students every year. We go take a trip to Gettysburg and yes. travel. Uh, and that was canceled uh, last year. It'll probably be canceled again this year. We usually go into yeah. spring. And so that's, uh, that's unfortunate. That's but, strange. you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how things go. And hopefully we'll get things back online here pretty yes. soon. Now you talk about your book. I've got it in my hand. <laughs> it, it's, the cover, by the way, is, uh, is, is, is lovely. Colossal Ambitions, Confederate Planning for a post Civil War world. And it's all about how uh, the, the Confederates were thinking about what was gonna happen once they had secured independence uh, and then moving uh, forward after that. And I have to say that the book is aptly titled uh, because uh, their ambitions were quite colossal. <laughs> so I think you got it right there for sure. Um, now this is something that I think is, is really interesting because we don't usually discuss these topics in Civil War classes. And I think we are, um, Uh, well, maybe blinded by the fact that we know how things are going to work out. I mean, nobody, there's no spoilers here. We all go into Civil War courses knowing that the Confederacy is going to lose. So we don't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about what they were looking at in the future because we know it's going to be over in four years and it's a failed experiment and they don't sort of fail, they really fail. Um, uh, And my first question is, uh, what compelled you to look at these ideas, these things,
1: but the first thing, well thank you very much indeed for that, the first thing that compelled me to look at these ideas mm. was how I was struck when I first dipped my toe into the research, how these individuals construed what they were doing to be the central world attention. As a Brit, I thought that was really presumptuous, mm. you know, Britain was the world power. Uh, maybe you can understand the United States wanting to sort of suggest that its a mission is to change the world. But it really shocked me that the Confederates, these journalists, politicians, planters, merchants, were very acutely aware of of that they believed that what they were doing was going to change the world, that their the establishment of their independent nation state. Was getting, was a world changing event and i just thought that's amazingly presumptuous Mm -hmm. and is it just newspaper propaganda i mean we're all used to that aren't we Mm -hmm. the media play but actually it seemed to be much deeper than that it seemed to be an habitual state of mind now and and so all the questions came up was it due to slavery was it due to economics was it due to their sharing the american mission and that's what and that's what led me to dig deeper i sort of took it on board that you know having been a gallagher student reading the union war that you know and the global lincoln that that the that that abraham lincoln was a sort of saw the united states as having a global mission for gettysburg address but it Mm -hmm. shocked it surprised me and as you said yourself it seems to be overlooked because who i mean it failed so who You know, so it seems to be overlooked what these plans were for their nation state and how that those that plan nation state would change the world.
0: Now, knowing that they uh, that they that they planned to change the world and they 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 had every reason to believe that they were going to win starting off on this. And and with these plans in mind, does this change how we ask questions about the decision making process? you know, at least in the first few years of the war, the things that they, that, you know, the, uh, the, the strategies that they developed, you know, um, uh, on the battlefield, uh, the political decisions that they make, the people, you know, in the, in the provisional government, these various things that they set up, uh, does, do, do, do their ideas about the future uh, affect this decision-making process?
1: You know, and and having been taught by Gary Gallagher, we both know that for the Confederates, a a draw was a win with Mm -hmm. the war. All they had, I mean, the strategy was they had to just persuade the Northern public that it wasn't worth the effort to conquer them, you know, running out the clock, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so that there, so hence that gives the sort of the realism, they were never going to win the war or conquer the North. And it also suggests something else. As Jefferson Davis said, war is but temporary, peace is permanent. These plannings were all for after the war. They weren't envisaging themselves as a militarized republic with Robert E. Lee as dictator for life they were seeing themselves they were going the war is going to be over it's going to be negotiated The war's always a political process Mm -hmm. they believed where there would be a negotiation with the united states the united states may well be the key ally and trading partner with an independent confederacy was always the number one power with whom they were concerned Mm -hmm. and then after that we're going to set out their their, their, their their sort of plans for peace, civil war ideas. But the, the, the carrying out of a war was a separate, you know. This is to secure the negotiations, and that and so the strategies uh, were. I mean they evolved they changed over time and that's important there were there were more optimistic times when peace was nearer there were times when peace seemed much further away and so that sh- I talk about rebooting that they had to sort of reimagine replan change their plans in accordance with the circumstances but the war also opened up opportunities as well over the passage of time it wasn't just so as you see so it wasn't just looking downhill towards Appomattox there were times when things to be very very different and then and then it's sort of they, 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 they lurched it's not a linear process their reinventions weren't uh, a story of narrowing visions towards defeat they the one constant was they were going to have be in control of their future they were going to have a a sort of a plan and existence, and that, and they, but they had to sort of change that over the course of the war.
0: So incredibly important to recognize that too. This is something that I think we often get away from when we study Civil War history. Is that we envision, and, and again, we'll, we'll probably keep referring to things that Gallagher taught us on, <laughs> you know, what, what he used to call the Appomattox syndrome. Uh, you know, when I when I sat, when I when I was uh, a TA for him uh, in his Civil War survey course at UVA, and he would you know call it the Appomattox syndrome, as if you know they 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 set off and everything is great, and then it's a steady downhill uh, trajectory. Uh, you know, towards defeat, which of course isn't the case. And we have to look at the ebb and flow of yes. what goes on on the battlefield and how people change their plans accordingly. Um, slavery, I mean, you can't not talk about slavery in this story. Um, they, uh, it, it, is, it is without question to me that that's what they, they set off to secure a slaveholding yes. uh, republic, and 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 the, and the evidence for that, of course, is overwhelming. Yes. Um, but in terms of expanding slavery, uh, which I which 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 I suppose was what you know kicked all this off in the beginning, uh, expanding slavery into the federal territories. But from their uh, point of view, now that they're seeking to secure independence, what do they have in mind for the future? of the expansion of slavery were they planning on enticing other united states uh, states to come into to to join the confederacy in the midwest or were they thinking about conquering the new mexico territory and eventually uh southern california which had a strong uh confederate uh secessionist sentiment here in my hometown of los angeles um you know what were the what were their ideas here
1: so they definitely uh they they viewed slavery as as if a necessity for expansion. I mean, Lincoln got it right. You know, you 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 trap the scorpion and it will sting itself to death, and you constrict slavery, you hem it in. It leads to its it leads to its destruction. The slave the slaveholder had to seek new lands, had to sort of be on the move, had to expand. Because they they looked at the population graphs and then exaggerated them to show how rapidly the the natural growth of the enslaved population was. So they have this sort of, but they view it as an opportunity rather than as a threat. They view slavery, number one, they view slavery as modern and the future. They view other powers as hypocritical when they talk about abolition. They actually see because slavery is quote more is economically that they they talk about they have all these positive arguments about how slavery is both Less exploitative than the factory wage system of, the, of, the, of the Britain and the, and the North. The other powers are, are recognizing this and they are sort of adopting contract indentured servitude labor systems using Chinese or Indian uh, workforces. So there's this sort of worldview that the tropics are going to be opened out to be exploited by various forms of unfree labor. So that's their sort of that's the context, and other countries want to sort of destroy slavery in order to further their own. Whether it's the British Empire, whether it's the French, whether it's the North of the United States. So expansion is necessary, and there they are as the war moves, they sort of move from more sort of wide, sort of uh, expansive visions to more. of defined over the course of time but the one plant it's peaceful expansion on the texas model to simplify so you plant colonies of slaveholders within slave people and where well their first their first sort of lookout is is to is mexico northern mexico to regenerate the language is regeneration regeneration of mexico regeneration of the caribbean colonies they are that is where they see the sort of a plant the the planting future regards to having what about the rest of the united states i mean there is certain interest in in, a, in an access to the Pacific Ocean, so Southern California, but that could be replaced by New Mex, by, by Northwest Mexico as the access to the Pacific Ocean, and that they are actually looking at, seriously at plans to colonize Northwest Mexico with Confederate refugees from California, and that that would be the way, and expand slavery into mining in the Southwest. That is absolutely, pac- that they were, <coughs> They were certainly not averse to admitting free states into the Confederacy, it depended on their level of confidence, and that was from time to time. And that they, I think what they, their dream scenario was that the, the Midwestern states mm. would fragment and form a sort of free trading agricultural sub state. The Northwest Confederacy, as they called it, and that California would join the sort of Pacific Confederacy and that they would see them themselves as a sort of primus inter pares in the sort of balance of power of North America. I mean, that was particularly attractive in 1864 when they, if Lincoln lost the election, they believed that that would be the outcome that there'll be a fragmentation of the United States, and that will give them not a, that will give them the green light for their own expansion, and sort of secure themselves against against the United States in the long run.
0: And so much hinges on that 1864 election. it? Yes. I can tell. The letters that I have read from Confederate soldiers yes. Just yes. in the field, privates, you know, just not overly educated individuals, but they 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 really understood. I think that that election hit so much. Hinged on that. Let me ask you about Mexico because I thought that was interesting that you mentioned regeneration. Uh, Mexico had, 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 had gotten rid of slavery um, already, but um, on the Texas, you, you mentioned the Texas model, were they, were they thinking about colonizing and then annexing parts of Mexico into the Confederacy or forming some sort of uh, an, an alliance uh, with the Mexican government?
1: They were well, both. I mean, as you know, Mexico was a rapidly changing... Yeah. And then, then, then we,
0: get, we have to bring France into the picture too. Well, course. that's
1: right. And depending on the hostility of the central government, so uh, Benito Juarez and, that, and when it was the liberal government in Mexico City, they were keen on separatism mm. and fostering links with the various uh, governors like Vidari and, and the, the governors of Sonora, Novera, Leon, etc. So fostering separatism, right out and out expansion, uh, at other times would be with, but again, to repeat, but it's, ex, it's expansion by, a, it's called, it's a Mexico model. I mean, the Mexico, the Texas model. But when Maximilian and, and Napoleon come along, well, they don't believe that that's going to last very long. They do not have a high opinion of either Napoleon or his uh, Mexican ally, mm-hmm. uh the, the Habsburg ally Maximilian. And that 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 in again is that's gonna lead to settlement under Veregius and then in the long because they're looking further into the future so they're looking at that sort of Texas timeline of some or once they get in they shore up the economy and they begin to settle and then they will declare independence whether it's um, whether it's by permission or not, and then be absorbed into the Confederacy sort of down the line 10 or 15 Provinces on Mexico will join the Confederacy, then they look to, south, to to Central America and South America as well. I mean they are in the long run that 's their the tropical western hemispheric south that is what they see as their informal or formal empire, mm-hmm. so to speak mm-hmm. uh,
0: in, in, since you look, since you mentioned South America, I mean we can look at the other slave holding republics that are in uh, in this hemisphere, Brazil, naturally being one, um, uh, and and Cuba as well, did they look to them to form a, a confederation, um, or to just to to join forces uh, in a sort of I guess new world order? With um, in, in in you know, we were discussing Tucker's book earlier, where they they sort of take the uh, the the ideas and and perfect you know with with slavery as as the is the sort of you know. Uh, uh, the, 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 the shining light here, you know, this, this, this perfects all these ideas that everybody else had kind of gotten wrong. Now we have this, uh, which makes it so much better. Do they look to these other countries uh, as examples? Um,
1: well, they, they saw them. I mean, again, the Confederate version of slavery was superior mm-hmm. to that of Cuba and Brazil. So they sort of saw Cuba and Brazil as, or Spain rather, as following in the sort of slipstream, but definitely as a uh, as a sort of pro-slavery alliance. I mean, here that sort of connects with Matt Carp's book about, uh, about the vast Southern Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there's certainly uh, the sort of pro-slavery foreign policy, without doubt, that they saw that Brazil and Cuba would be sort of subordinate allies. Mm-hmm in this in this mission and and that, that was and that was extremely uh, and that was extremely important to them uh, as a sort of as as a way to sort of secure their own you know their own great power status that there are slave, it was always good not to be the only slave power mm-hmm. that there were other slave powers but it sort of shored up their their position as a sort of as a leader of other nations yes. so those two, uh, so spain and, and brazil were very important and that and that sort of but they also believe and they knew well, they regard that they also adamantly believed that the future of slavery in those two countries was dependent on the confederate sec- confederacy securing its independence mm-hmm. so that the magnitude that they knew that this that this um that their independence were on which stood that these countries were sort of depend therefore were sort of dependent upon them so that again that position of inferiority of dependence upon the confederacy you know however whatever the brazilians and the spanish might well have thought that was how the confederates sort of viewed their view view you know so their futures depended on what the confederates did
0: and how do they envision uh, this future in terms of trade, free trade, um, and free market capitalism? I know that capitalism is something that comes up a lot these days with the intersections yes. of capitalism and slavery, and some people believe that that is something that exists, and some people don't. Um, uh, you know, I, I I often look at the uh, at the commentary from the you know the, the northern states at this time, and, and they were very much. Uh, they very much insisted that it was the slave system was antithetical uh, to, to how they how they how they envisioned the future for free market capitalism, and yet here we have Confederates who are wedded to this system who see themselves as free market capitalists. Also,
1: yeah, what is that? I mean, you've really got Olmstead and and indeed, and I'm sure you read the the, sort of the soldiers' letters. for Northerners God, these people are backward. Yeah, it's just sort of over and over again. Absolutely, and and I think this is. I mean, I, I my my, te- my uh, sort of from, from the evidence, what's this, What is, what stood out to me was that I, as I said before, the Confederates believed themselves to be modern, progressive, yeah. but in a different kind of way to what the the sort of the, the sort of what we could term national economy, industrializing economy of the North and Britain. Their future was, free trade was profoundly important for a whole host of political as well as economic reasons. That for them, and, and they saw, not only was the future moving more pro-slavery... That this, that this kind of labor force was the way of the future, but then also free trade or freer trade would be the future. It was not going to be a future of tariffs. Yeah. It was going to be a future of tariff reductions yeah. and openings of new markets. For them, it not only, you know, it, it sort of rationalizes expansion and maximum production of staple goods, but what they did not envisage was industrializing. Uh, if only would be an unavoidable necessity in order to have an in 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 order to secure their independence would be the only rationales so if you like they were political when it came to industrializing Mm -hmm. Uh, economically. Free trade and just grow, let's just put it simply, grow more cotton, maybe diversify into mining and other kinds of resources. And trade, trade, because why? Because that makes other, because there's sort of rationale behind that, and this connects back to slavery, make other countries interdependent on you. That secures slavery's future, because you're doing business. Abolition is a rose, they argued, because... Britain worked via New York with the South and that allowed abolitionism that allowed people to have a luxury of their consciences. If you direct trade with the slave power, you will accept slavery. Mm. So their argument went.
0: Well, you know, you've touched on a number of things here that I I, I do want to bring up about their economic system, um, how they are so dependent on cash crop agriculture, uh, how this is important for uh, in in a diplomatic uh, you know, in a diplomatic position uh, vis-à-vis the rest of the world, that, that cotton was so uh, uh, integral uh, to that. Um, and then we discussed diversification. Now, mining uh, actually makes sense, and I can see that, that the slave labor system. Uh, I think you could adapt slave labor to mining just as easy as you could to adapt it to, to agricultural pursuits. But the, the the industrial thing is what I find yeah. a little perplexing. They do have yes. some industrial centers in the South: Petersburg, Richmond, Nashville. <laughs> um, but 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 you say that that this is really not on the table. That any diversification economically at all really would be mining. But they want to keep putting more and more into cotton production. Yes. Um, so so how is it then? Are, do they just then use uh, their their position on free trade uh, to get industrial products? Yes. Uh, that, that, so that's that's how they're gonna they're gonna work it.
1: They will, the the more you trade, the cheaper will be the manufactured goods Mm -hmm. that you get back in. It's a sort of Ricardian comparative advantage. Stick to the knitting. It will always be more economic. It will always be more efficient for one just to concentrate on what you do best. So growing cotton, growing more and more cotton. And in turn, that will lead to and they took with, with direct trade that that will lead to cheaper manufactured goods coming in. Again, they argued, you know, that this is, you know, what price for union? And this is some good scholarship, those sort of pseudo-economic arguments mm-hmm. about how much they believe they were subsidizing the north of the United States with that sort of pass through of cotton, etc. to new york whereas if they directly trade with new york with, with liverpool or bordeaux that somehow or other the margins will so much improve that they were and they will be able to use their sort of direct wait to deal to negotiate and it sounds almost trumpy and better deals because <laughs> right. yes there is an inconsistent and hey these people are inconsistent mm-hmm. they also talked about doing commercial packs and trade deals mm-hmm. with a low, lowering tab but with preferential rates and that, that sort of came in uh as if you like the ideal is a free trade paradise but the reality intrudes and they sort of then well, then we've got to sort of, you know, we're living in not the world as it is, as we want it to be, but as it is. And hence, we've got to sort of shore up our position with trade deals in order to sort of um, bribe, basically bribe or or economically blackmail countries. Right, Imagine hold them More of a King Cotton, sorry.
0: Exactly, yeah. This is the thing that they were, they were thinking about from the very yes. beginning. King Cotton, do yes. they ever, fa- there's a couple of things, though. Do yes. they ever... Did they ever consider um, because, you know, uh, they, as, as we know, the King cotton uh, diplomacy did not work, you know, and, and England wound up going to India and Egypt to get the cotton yes, there? Yes. Um, did they consider these things, competition from yes. other places? And the other question is, does they ever debate in, in, in Confederate Congress or at the state level, uh, uh, putting money into an infrastructure, perhaps, to create an industrial system in the South? Uh, did they at least debate that yes. and just throw it out
1: the window? How did that How did that go down? So the two things. So two things. First of all, um, they they're, they're sort of the take. They they were they viewed themselves as very well aware of what Britain was up to in India and 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 Egypt. That they view that other countries were developing alternative cotton supply. They also believe that with their cotton stockpile gathered during the war that they would somehow floor the market reduce the cotton prices after because remember they can't say go after the war is over after the war is over we will dump this cotton on the market and that will wipe out inferior competition in egypt algeria or India. So that was their sort of, so they, they sort of said, yes, this is bad news, but it's not going to be w- once, once the war is remixed, once the war is over, everything will sort itself out. In terms of industrial policy, I think, you know, in 1862 and in 1864, they definitely, as sort of, as what shoring up their position in a more defined nation state, as opposed to this expansive empire they definitely uh looked to the development and support of it they imposed them. they raised tariffs in 1862 there's a huge debate about that with as i'm sure you know in the jefferson in the davis cabinet and there is this sort of view that they have to whether it's drippy but it is as an unavoidable necessity and they didn't say it out because they never do but of course they do not see industrialization as as, as, frankly, um, consistent with slavery, mm-hmm. you know, there is, there's no question that they, that the complexities of a factory system were, you know, would would slavery, would slavery, they did not have that debate. And that, and their reluctance to sort of embrace. They so talked about industrial revolutions, mm. but they, but they view themselves to repeat. They hoped to be the supplier to those industrial revolutions rather than undertake one themselves. Mm. That was what they want. They did not want an industrial revolution. They thought they, they, they saw, but they didn't think that it was necessary. But they were happy. They looked to mining, coal, iron, silver, gold. -hmm. A surgeon looked to and. The textile industries and mills that sort of the new south beginning to creep in yes uh, I think you can definitely see te- uh, that there that there were views that a textile industry for example and various industrial espionage in order to try and shore up maybe to improve their iron works mm-hmm. and others by by looking at what was going on in Britain and and also in France as well which they were doing towards the end of the war so you can see, yes, that they were sort of almost reluctantly, and they view themselves as therefore realistically adjusting to a less than ideal circumstance. Uh, And that, and and it is those that sort of led to, ho-hum, well then we need to have some kind of industrial base because Our interdependency arguments, Britain and France are not going to, the the North remains very hostile, we're going to have to prepare for a long period of hostilities and tariffs, and that will mean that we're going to have to have, we're going to have to be more Mm self-sufficient, came the cry, Uh, be more economically independent than they would have wanted. So it was certainly on the table. Yes, 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 yes.
0: So let's talk about relationships with other people. Something um, that I've found very interesting in the scholarship these days is there's been a lot of look at the indigenous peoples and their connections to the Civil War, especially with the United States. Uh, but not so much done on relationships with indigenous peoples and the Confederate states. Uh, you know, Arkansas is right, right right there, you know, adjacent uh, to uh you know Indian territory, as they would have called it. Um and uh so so what was what did they envision in terms of relationships uh, with the various uh, Native American uh, communities uh, and nations and um, and did they, did, they, did they foresee treaties did they foresee uh, pushing them off the land uh, what, what did
1: they have in them in mind I think this is one of the most i, I found I found this topic was really interesting so sort of coming coming in i thought you know, what what is there going to be? Uh, and the answer is, I mean, and this, I mean, it is uh, very as complicated as the Native American community is. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are there are a wide variety of different approaches. But to bring it to that, uh, number one, they viewed themselves as more benign in their treatment of Native Americans than the United States. That they would be. That the Native Americans would prefer to be associated with the Confederacy than with the United States. And that they would be part of what I, what I see as a, I mean, this is something that's evolving, but as part of a sort of racial hierarchy. Mm-hmm. where Native Americans would insert, because of course, some as tribes, as I'm sure you know, were actual slaves, the Creeks and the Cherokees, mm-hmm. as slaveholders themselves. And that, But there are, set, they call them the settled tribes, so the five nations in Oak, what will become Oklahoma, are very different to the tribes further west, uh, the Apaches, etc., which would be on, a, will be on a lower level in this hierarchy having said that there are huge differences between say Texas and Arkansas and their approach to Native Americans and what Davis and Virginians were was amusing about enrichment debates because you can see that there is more hostility and you know we want to take the, we, the, the with with especially further west you went there was a good deal more of a sort of old fashioned repression expansion driving off land etc. Whereas I think the Confederates would view themselves as a sort of benign incorporation. You know when they have the seats in Congress, there's a committee established, there are observers and there are debates about whether they should be fully fledged representatives. Will there be a state? Albert Pike, who later becomes, joins the Union side, is a champion of what I would term a sort of reconciliation strategy. You can see the advantages. You know, it's a typical sort of in the longer story of interactions between Native Americans and what Anglo-American settlers. Native Americans tend to support the weaker side in a sort of who are you know they have their own they they're sort of interested in that and in the same way the weaker side wants to appeal to the to to so like the british did against the colonists for example in the war of 1812 you can just see that kind of um you know the sort there's that strategy playing out as well so it is it's a they would like to present themselves as 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 this sort of cosmopolitan, multiracial, because Mexico, Mexican-Americans, Native African-Americans, and the, sort of the levels. And that in turn, they viewed the North as white oppresses all, whereas for them, they viewed themselves as this sort of, multi, this more to- they did view them as a bizarre, but they viewed themselves as a more tolerant, diverse empire. And that is, and, and that is, but that is, that is shocking. But at the same time, they put a lot of that. I mean, this is, that is what, that is what their plans envisaged. Mm-hmm. And it remains. I mean, they continue to remain. I mean, again, it's about status. If you bring these people, because I mean, you know, part of, you know, this is a great power argument, you know, they have to have, because they know that the great powers have rights and responsibilities. And responsibilities are to our African-American slave people and Native Americans are very important as a subsidiary responsibility as behoves a great power to have. So for them, it was part of their status, so they clung on to it to the very end that they were going to be the sort of guardian, so to speak, of the majority of Native Americans. And they believed in, like, in the, like the Sioux in, in Minnesota, they believed that, so, that there were some sort of allies and fifth colonists in the North who would you know, someone was telling me that apparently the Dakotas were full of sort of pro-Confederate sort of language. Whereas I wondered, is that not the unions deci- unionists deciding that in order to, you know, validate their own sort of ambitions, as always. There's so much more complexity to this story. And the local rivalries are tremendously important. But for the Richmond government looking to the future this was very important to them, that the Native Americans would have a defined place in the sort of confederate polity of autonomy, but with, but incorporated within the state, uh, but with a generous, you know, with, with what they boasted at as being a more just and tolerant and benign and humanitarian vision than the one presented by, by the United States itself.
0: They do have a very, it's a, it's a very strange way of looking at humanitarianism. I mean, this, the yes. old slavery is a positive, good uh, yes. argument would, would, would take that same kind of position. Um, yes. I'm wondering, do they ever use, um, do they ever try to entice uh, Native American communities to come into the Confederacy based on previous track records with the United States government? Um, you know, ex- explaining that they hadn't had uh, such great luck with the United States. Uh, maybe try, you know, you know, throw your lot in with us. Uh, you'll be better off, even though you are going to wind up living in a caste system. You did mention it's a, it's a hierarchy; yes, it's a racial
1: hierarchy. A caste, a caste is a good way or a caste. A, yeah, exactly. I think they do see that as a caste system, and yes, they did try and entice. I mean, and this is but this is done. There was quite, there were debates and quarrels about this, and others. You know, if you ask an Arkansas senator or you ask a te- the Texans, they don't want any of that in court. They don't want enticing people in. But, but the sort of the day, the, the sort of the, the, there's there's a faction who are trying to push on this and trying to entice them in to this sort of because it's better off than you would have under the United States. You're sort of in a position, I suspect, you know that. that and they would say, look, you are again, it's like sort of, as a version of her and democracy, as mm-hmm. we all know. All, poor whites have a status in a slavery-based society. And they're sort of saying the same thing to Native Americans. Mm -hmm. You're going to have a status in a slavery-based society. You're going to be above enslaved people. So you're better off with us than you are at the bottom of non-people in the United States, where your future, frankly, is uncertain. Mm -hmm. Here you have a, you know, it is, there are no good options for you. There are no good options, but this is better, but you're better off with us, than you are under the United States. But you know, do you know? Do they express that? No, they. I mean, to the West, there's are sort of, people talking about John Baylor, you know, the self-styled governor of Arizona, talking about exterminating the Apache. You know, so you got, the, you 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 got, you got the sort of local conditions. You know, talking out. and the Texans talking about that they would rather be fighting Native Americans than actually fighting for the, you know fighting for the Confederacy actually. <laughs>
0: You, uh, you discussed uh, something that I found very interesting, uh, uh, something uh, along the lines of a Homestead Act, a Confederate Homestead Act, uh, yes. in which every soldier, every veteran, um, would get a plot of land and a slave. And, yes. and, and thus, uh, you know, have, you know as, as a payment for services rendered, you are now part of a slave holding class. Yes. How, how did that work? Where were they going to get this land? Um, Who was going to, was the the government going to subsidize the purchase of these slaves? How is that going to work exactly?
1: Well, I think that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I mean, number one, this is this sort of slavery was not, was changing. And they were recognizing that this is one of the consequences of the war. They talked about amelioration of reforming slavery. And part of that was dispersing ownership. And that, yeah, absolutely, this will be a, government program. Remember, they were, you know, this about expansion, mm-hmm. and they, you know, and as the scholars have argued, rightly, there's a huge amount of undeveloped land out, you know, if you, to Arkansas and Texas, as well as then these new places of expansion further. West. You can see, you know, their ambition is soldier settlers. These will be the new Texases that are going to be out west. You're going to have veterans, and eventually, and they talk about how these soldiers are going to be crucial in Mexico uh, in order to sort of shore up Maximilian, you know, because the war's gonna be over when Lincoln loses the election and we can send our army soldiers with enslaved people uh, to go and shore up Maximilian's tottering position in Mexico Mm. City. So it, it, it solves all these problems. And yes, but of course the Confederacy was a huge government run enterprise anyhow. And these kinds of ideas were sort of you know were were put forward as a i mean you could say as a reform there were conservatives who disagree who you know who disagreed with this idea of expropriation of enslaved people i mean there's huge debates about that as well as eventually about emancipating ensla- you know about putting african Americans in uniform mm-hmm. um and and I think the important point is that they were, they thought that they were adjusting to circumstances, that this would stabilize slavery if you, die, if you dispersed the ownership away from the big planters towards a more equal based society, that that would both control the enslaved people and, yes, and deal with a big, they talked constantly about how much debt they were going to have at the end of the war. And how were they going to pay it off? Mm-hmm. You know, because again, they wanted to be a treaty credit-worthy nation, rather right. like the United States in 1783, 1789, with the Constitution. They believed that they were going to have the same problems, and that therefore that required reform. And that required a more fiscal, a, a fiscal state part of that was exporting a huge amounts of cotton, raising tariffs, but others were about, yes, trying to sort of stabilize the society and expand the society at home.
0: I've had a lot of guests on recently that have discussed the Confederate war effort in a global context. Man uh, Tucker, yes. we mentioned a minute ago, Neil Zicorn yes. uh, has been on. Paul Quigley uh, came on. We talked about reconciliation in a global context. Some really interesting Uh, Stuff And we've really, uh, a lot of that has gone back to um, the revolutions, the European revolutions of 1848. Um, Do you believe that Confederates understood themselves as part of a revolutionary trend that seemed to be going on worldwide uh, through in in the middle of the 19th century? Do they see themselves as part of this or something um, exceptional? I Confed- mean, uh, Confederate exceptionalism. How about
1: that? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a great question. I mean, I teach a some class on the Civil War in a global perspective, and I use Andre flesh's book, who, uh, great, you yeah. know, and as again as a novel. and, you know, and I was and I'm thinking about uh, and, and thinking about that uh, at length about the age of revolutions and and. My answer is twofold on this, because I am, uh, I, they, viewed, they viewed the sort of struggles of self-determination in Europe as, as encouraging developments, okay, but at the same time, they viewed themselves, they were not just another Italy, let alone a Poland or Hungary, I. failures, or a weak new country, Italy, they view themselves as the fifth largest economy on earth they viewed themselves as a great power and that's why i say. so they had a sort of you know they looked at the european struggles for self-determination that they were they were the combination of it they were bigger than all of it but that it was part of history moving in their direction um you know, that this is, that there is, these are, you know, that this, so there's 17, I mean, as I, what, the revolution that was most important to them is 1776. Mm-hmm. The European revolutions are, you know, they are, not, you know, they are, they look at that and they see that these are encouraging trends toward and that, you know, that, that supports our, our, our own, you know, our, our, our own, but we are, we are very different to them. We are Americans, we are bigger than them, and that, that is, the, and, and those are sort of, those are fine, but we are something very much bigger and different to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of slightly, uh, because again, it, it's, they, yes, they see themselves in this huge global, global trends without, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's what I sort of, they have a world view, a world mission that they have, Uh, And that's a very profound sense of where they as to where they fit in. But it is as a great power, rather than as this sort of struggling country seeking recognition. Uh, They are but that, that is that, That's by the by. For them, it is. It's about it, it, the, the, their quest for their, their quest as in, to be founding as a slaveholding superpower is something that is very dis- different and so sort of rather more transformative than the struggles of self-determination in Europe.
0: So they did have the, a sense of Confederate exceptionalism like in Ameri- yes. like, like in the United States, they had a sense of American exceptionalism yes
1: ah. I think that 's a very good question, I actually hadn 't really thought about it until you've re- i mean you 've asked a very good... i think they, because they view themselves yes, they are the slave power, but they view themselves as a different slave power mm-hmm. they view themselves uh, th- and they view them that maybe they want the world to, to become less exceptional and more Aligned with what they see the future they might be exceptional now, but the future is moving in their direction So there'll be other free trading powers dependent of unfree labor around the world and that that will And that So so their whole point they are move. They're looking to the future as to one where they're gonna fit into this system that suits them That's I mean that's a complex answer to your question mm-hmm. And I think that is because, you know, they have their cake, they want their cake and they eat it as well. Mm-hmm. They are sort of say, so we are revolutionary, but we are and we and we draw sustenance on the Europeans. At the same time, we are also uh, exceptional Americanists who are sort of who are not only more powerful, but are very, very different with our slavery based economy to what to what is happening in, in Europe.
0: By the time that Lincoln is reelected uh, in in November of 1864, and we mentioned earlier that so much of this hinged on that reelection, because yes. Lincoln was determined to carry this carry this out to, to the United States victory. Um, I'm not always 100 percent convinced that everybody went okay. That's the end of it, and it's only a matter of time now. I'm 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 the on the other side of that coin. I think there were plenty of people still hanging around, going, "If we could just." You know that we just need. We're almost there. You know we can just yeah, hang they're, on. They're,
1: they're there in April the ninth, eighteen sixty-five. Mm-hmm. yeah so think, we, we, all, we If only Lee moves over that hill, yeah. uh, you know, and, and deploys his capital You know, it could still happen. Sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. And you. No, no, those, it's, those.
0: It's, it's, it's okay. We're clearly on the same train here. um yes. But I'm wondering, did anybody begin to sense? Okay, uh, maybe it is a matter of time here. Uh, maybe we should begin to rethink. Uh, the post-war world and, and what that's going to look like, maybe even as reunited with the United States in some way that is, yes. that is, uh, you know, uh, that benefits us in
1: some particular way. Yes. I did. A, I did an earlier article with the uh, civil war history on this mm-hmm. because yes, they do, but the, the way they, the way that they sort of adjust. And I think, you know, the Lincoln's reelection is not as transformative as perhaps some might see. And I think that's why I agree with you. People did, in the same way, you know, we all know that the desertion rates upticked. Mm -hmm. But then again, it was winter, and they always uptick in the wintertime. And Lee's army was back to pretty well full strength by March 1865, as we know. So it is, you know, and they were carrying on. What did they... But if you like, the policy wonks, the policy makers, the pundits, thought, well, we've got to rethink our relationship with the United States. That, And remember, they are always looking for negative. People like Alexander Stevens are mm-hmm. often... We're, we're, were talking about that we need a new relationship with the United States over and over again. And I think Maul's moved into that column, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they were becoming, they may ha- also hate Jefferson Davis, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were ditching the Confederate project. What they were saying was, because it was impossible for them to do that, They they could not imagine a future where they were not going to be in control of their destinies. Mm -hmm. But they were going to have to qualify the meaning of independence. Our meaning of independence was something very different to what they understood that it could be autonomy. There were various, and this again is where Europe is instructed, because they were looking at Europe, they were looking at the German confederation they were looking at the, and the sort of dispersed empire you know they would look at you know sort of self-determination was always somewhat sort of was a more ambiguous of them because you know as a sort of loosely governed weak empire was something that really appealed to them particularly in that final phase of the of where they recognized look we're gonna have to swallow we're gonna have to sort of invest in a cooperative, collaborative regime with, Europe, with, with the United States, we might have to endorse the Monroe Doctrine and maybe jointly apply it. And we all know the sort of a famous Francis Preston Blair meeting mm-hmm. with Davis, and Davis goes really excited about this whole idea of an empire, overlooking was a one-nation idea, but towards an, a joint empire to the south. And so they're sort of going, we are, we can be in a position to support the United States in a sort of win-win scenario. There may be a sort of some limited federal authority and, you know, Calhoun's dual presidency, you know, their homegrown American ideas on this, reversion to Articles of Confederation. Uh, and that that would sort of assuage the northern pride so to speak at the same time guarantee for them themselves the slavery and and the uh, the right to act as a sort of unit within the united within whatever union was mm-hmm. going to sort of come out whatever the confederation confederated states of america uh, it's just a negotiating ploy they don't really mean reunion and emancipation mm-hmm. They're just sort of saying that in order to keep their own base happy, you know, because they are all small D Democrats and they, they, they sort of understand the northern public opinion. And so for them, well, we need to, but they don't, but we can come to a bargain. And providing we have armies in the field, that can always improve our leverage. So what doesn't end with Lincoln's election is their belief that they can cut a better deal mm-hmm. with the United States. Something may turn up, they're optimists. Now, there is a point when delusion and some like to say delusion comes in, but I think we have to be careful about saying that people are deluded. Mm-hmm. They, their, their context, their understanding, they, they simply just could not accept that there wouldn't be a smoke-filled room, a meeting of commissioners uh, on both sides. That would hammer out something. I remember shock of April 1865. It's, I um, mean, they just talk about bewilderment, disorientation, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, et cetera, because that is, it's really late in the day. That those that those illusions are proven to be illusions for until then it 's seen as a very tangible reality for us. but yes, with a with a uni- some form of United States or joint foreign policy, there was so a tight commercial pact except were, these are were sort of ideas that they thought would be very appealing even once McCle- it's before McClennan lost the election mm-hmm. they really thought that these were going to get uh cre- that these were going to be credible after because always 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 the confederates knew that the most important power with whom they would have relations would be the united states mm-hmm. and they gave much more care and attention to that but i think scholars you know have you know they always look at hampton roads as sort of isolated sort of but no Okay, Lincoln won't meet them, but that doesn't stop them from constantly hammering out proposals and debating them. And sort of saying this is what we need to do in order to sort of open the eyes of the United States to what our true policy is. And they say that over and over again. It's so
0: important, and I'm glad we're stressing this. It's so incredibly important to stress in the classroom that yes. there are multiple roads down which these men could have traveled. Uh, yes. Of course, we know the story, and we started the conversation off with that we know how things are ending and 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 and, and, and as you know as veterans. <laughs> <laughs> <Gallactic> <laughs> you know that that's a, you don't you don't go come at it like that you know you, you need to come at it looking at it from their perspective and looking forward and this is something that i really if anything if, I, if any of my kids leave my classroom they come, they leave with that um you know with, I, I hope that they embrace the material and love the material and, and engage with it the way that you and i are but i really want them to leave with a sense that we have to read history forward um, always knowing that these, you know, there are the smoke filled rooms, and you don't know what's going to come out at the end of the day in those rooms.
1: Absolutely. And just a second, because I know, you, you know, to tell the kids that it is, you know, I, I think that you don't understand Lincoln's achievement, or mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass's achievement, without seeing how the real risk that somebody could have cut a deal with the Confederacy. Mm-hmm a real a real that was a real i mean we all know w- william henry seward you know and the compromisers i mean you, you know we know but this is a real risk Shark, stop this war let's cut our losses you know horace greeley and other you know the, the 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 concert particularly in that time in 1860 in, in that summer of 1864 when lee is bleeding the union troops white Uh, you know you know and in the overland campaign the northern public opinion so high with u.s grand in command you know he's our man who's going to take out lee and that sudden collapse in morale and you know and the confederates are this is when they're in their realist phase so to speak and they're going we mean you no harm we're not going to threaten you let us go, and we and let us let and you do your you you're already proven that you're a great power, North. You're the you've got the largest fleet on earth, for goodness sake. You just overtaken the British, and you you know you've got an army a million. We know we know that you got you know an army a million strong standing up. So you've got nothing more to prove. Let us go, and and you know and you need and that and that. And that is such a, you know, talk about decision, you know, decision points, and how history could have gone in different ways, and how much we rely on on the achievements of people in the past to have seen that off. Because as I argue, there was no coexistence with the Confederacy. It was going to expand and uh, and 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 tra- and take the world in a very different direction. So. You know, I'd like to think that there is that there is that there is something there that I think is a, what I would term a sort of useful in the classroom kind of thing. To you know, history can go in different directions. Nothing is inevitable. Those mm-hmm. battles had to be fought and won. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. One last question I have for you is: When all this was over, um, all said and done, what became of the these Confederate visionaries? Uh, did they leave and go to Brazil? <laughs> Uh, did they shake, stand at the Potomac and shake their fist? Did they they <laughs> did they, rejo- they rejoin uh, you know the, the the American politics and do the best they could for uh, you know the, what was left of their states? What happened to these guys?
1: Well, like Professor Tucker, I've sort of done a sort of epilogue chapter mm-hmm. in a, in his book called "Reconstruction: An Empire." The day prior, out in New Mexico, is is the editor, and that's coming out hopefully in 2021 or 2022. I timelines at the moment, i not, but but I talk about how yes, what happens to these individuals after war, and it's a fascinating story. I mean, there's this sort of moment of of, of some just fling you know flounce off to Brazil or mm. flee to London or stay in London bewilderment you know I don't know what to do uh, kind of sort of and then you find within a very short time that they are coming out with and I think this is you know this work on reconciliation fascinating but they're coming, that they are repeating their Confederate ambitions within the context of the United States yeah. That these are much more, they're not just mouthing off about the old South And they're not, tur- uh, and, and they're not just sort of turning inwards just like, like a sort of Condide, we must cultivate our garden kind of attitude They are talking again about Northwest Mexico free trade they're sort of taking out you know, they're, you know they're, they're sort of pulling out with the obviously with the with the fact that slavery has gone and that their whole world view has been upturned but within a few years through the democrat party they are they are coming back with a sort of what i would term a sort of free trade imperialism um that they see themselves uh, the, the so that so almost their legacy is the open door uh, in the long run that and the fascination for Pacific and the future, and that they draw on their own confederate because the Pacific for them was the future in the confederacy, mm-hmm. and that they pitch back upon that. Uh, with a sort of, with replacing independence and slavery with state, with, as we all know, with, with a sort of state rights, limited federal government. So, but that sort of bears, I mean, there is, with those final iterations that we talked about with the negotiations with the United States, there is continuities with the Confederate plans that are quite, you know, w- w- which are really quite loud, and then, you know, within a, some are in poli- some are in prison, some of them, but they view they come. They, they sort of, Lee commands them to return from mm. from their uh, <laughs> from, from from Brazil and Mexico, and so, so you sort of see this sort of reluctant um, sort of uh, upping sticks and returning. They've had their moment of sulking in their tents, and then they and and then they they sort of come back and brush themselves down. Uh, within a few, with those who haven't died, really, of those they, 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 sort of, they come back from retirement, mm-hmm. actually, on the whole. Those that I've only I really done a small subset in Virginia, but they, they do, they, 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 they retire for a few years, but then they're back. And with
0: so many um, stating that principles cannot be defeated on the battlefield,
1: um, I believe it's something that, the, that, they're, that they're very much... Well, again, when they see the war, the war for them, designing things by war mm-hmm. is a, it's, you know, this is a backward looking, that they, so they will, they will pick up, because again, the war for them, I mean, you know, there is the mythologizing of a war with the lost cause uh, is something that's an anathema mm-hmm. to this, to this, uh, to what their vision of a of a nation state would be. I mean that they were they were fighting to win and that their independence. But they drew lessons from that, practical lessons with which to use in the post-war world. And I think that and I think that and I think that you know and they, and seeing the United States as a great power, and an expansive power. But of course, if you if you have a proactive expansionist foreign policy, that hopefully means. Well, some would argue that means more government. You need a bigger federal government therefore. but I would just say, well, the federal government is doing so many other things that it won't be so much bothered with domestic issues, which of course they are also trying to sort of push through as, as we all know.
0: Well, Adrian, this has been a a fantastic conversation and I very much enjoyed your book, your fascinating book. It is Colossal Ambitions confederate planning for a post-civil war world and that is relatively new within the last few months from the university of virginia press yes our alma mater so i think that you should without with without delay uh go and purchase this book immediately uh and we can and we can talk more about it so thanks again for coming on the show
1: thank you so much for having me
0: So let me take a sec to tell you all about an exciting project I've got going on at Keith Harris History. I've transcribed and podcasted a series of letters written by Confederate prisoner of war Henry A. Allen. Allen was an officer in the 9th Virginia Infantry who was captured at Gettysburg at the Bloody Angle, the culmination of the Pickett-Pettigrew assault on July 3rd, 1863. He served in various prisoner of war camps for the duration of the war. During this time, he wrote often to his wife, Sarah, back in Portsmouth, Virginia, discussing the day-to-day life in Union prisons and his many thoughts on the war, his marriage and children, and life as a prisoner. I am currently annotating these letters to fill in the missing information and provide links to useful resources concerning Allen in particular and the prisoner of war experience in general. This is an ongoing process where I'll be adding new information and revising my commentary as my research on the topic develops. So please go to KeithHarrisHistory.com, click on the podcast tab, and have a listen to the Civil War letters of Henry A. Allen. From there, you can explore all kinds of resources and book suggestions that will help enrich your understanding of Union prisons and Confederate prisoners.